This episode is brought to you by Amazon.com. Go to this episode's page on Nerdist.com and click on the Amazon banner. Then shop like you regular do on Amazon, which is the place where everybody buys everything. Are there other stores? I don't think there are. So help support our show by supporting our sponsors. Again, go to this episode's page at Nerdist.com and click on the Amazon banner. Now entering Nerdist.com. It's the Nerdist Writers Panel on the Nerdist Podcast Channel. Ben Blacker talking writing with writers. Writers talking writing can get pretty exciting. The talk can be enlightening. It's very really frightening. Ben Blacker talking writing with writers. Welcome to the Nerdist Writers Panel series, an informal chat about writing and the business and process of writing. Each and every panel benefits A26LA, the national nonprofit tutoring program. For more information on A26LA, visit A26LA.org. I'm your moderator, Ben Blacker. Follow me on Twitter, at Ben Blacker. I'm the co-creator of the Thrilling Adventure Hour stage program and the style of old-time radio, available as a podcast on iTunes and via Nerdist.com. Uh, I've written for the series Super Ninjas and Supernatural. With a background in playwriting, our first panelist has written for Law & Order, SVU, and Terra Nova, among other projects. Please welcome Paul Grelong. Hi. Uh, after brief stints in the lower ranks of television and a script for Seinfeld, our next panelist joined The Simpsons, where he's lived for the past 15 years. Please welcome Matt Selman. Uh, and finally, starting out on The Wonder Years, our final panelist then joined the staff of 30-something beginning a successful collaboration with its creators that has lasted several years and encompassing the series she created, My So-Called Life, and continued to uh, Herskovitz and Zwick's Once and Again. Uh, most recently, she wrote the book for this musical Wicked that you've maybe heard of, and she co-developed the ABC family series Huge with her daughter Savannah. Please welcome Winnie Holtzman. Uh, thank you for being here, everybody. Thank you. Um, thank you. Winnie, let's start with you. Let's just jump right in and talk about uh, breaking into this industry. First of all, can I just jump in? Um, Please. I actually w didn't start on Wonder Years. Oh, really? No. That's, that's not ha that didn't happen. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I barely fact check. I, uh, <laughs> I did um, start on 30-something. My, 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 oh, actu really? my actual very first TV was, um, I wrote a script for Captain Kangaroo a really long time ago. Let's get into it. Hold on. <laughs> it was pretty bad, but... Um, Everyone was writing spec captains. <laughs> <laughs> but they, they rarely buy one. They just from a anyway, freelance. Like, <laughs> broke through somehow. Yeah, exactly. It had, it had everything. Uh, wait, where? So the first thing you sold was a, a Captain Kangaroo. You got to write an episode of that. The first thing I sold, if you want to get technical about like the truth, <laughs> we don't um, have to. Uh, was um, you know Ben Stiller? Heard of him? Yeah. So I'm, old, I'm older than a lot of you guys. So um, Ben Stiller's mom and dad sure. um, are famous sketch comedians. Mm -hmm. um, you know, obviously, at, you know, he did Seinfeld, but before then. Um, when they, when I was young in New York, they were looking for people to write a tiny little syndicated 
they were doing a five-minute, what you call a bumper, mm-hmm. between shows where you would write a comedy sketch for them. And that's how I got my WGA East. Really? Yeah. No kidding. Which I was so proud of that I left out on my coffee table because I didn't want anyone <laughs> to not notice it. <laughs> what were you doing before then? How did you even get in the mix for this opportunity? I was in a comedy group, mm-hmm. and we... we uh, we're not improvising. We actually wrote everything down first, and um, Ann and Jerry came to the show, and they, that's how it happened. Oh, interesting. Um, and so, so what were the... So step- I started as a performer. Yeah. Uh, were you always a that's performer? That's why I'm so comfortable in front of the mic. <laughs> <laughs> were you always a performer from a youth? Yes, I kind of was, but mm-hmm. I was also always a writer, and I was a little schizo. Like, I had that shy side of me, and I had that... I want to be an actor, you know, a bigger side of it. <laughs> uh, and what kind of stuff were you consuming as far as entertainment uh, at that time? You know, early, when, when you would consider well, yourself a performer and a writer. When I was young? Yeah. Um, consuming? I was consuming. Yeah, I mean, what were you reading? What were you watching? What were you listening to? I was reading to? compulsively plays, I would say. Really? Like, you know, like, you know those... Those books, like the great Amer- the great plays of nineteen mm-hmm. whatever, mm-hmm. Um, I was reading, you know, Tennessee Williams and a lot of Anton Chekhov, and I was going to The Godfather, and <laughs> I was going to Chinatown, and that was blowing my mind. And mm-hmm. I guess pretty much on TV, like Mary Tyler Moore Show and um, stuff like that. And were you? Uh, did you consider yourself a performer first? No, uh, what, I, were there? Were you making moves towards one or the other at a certain? I point? was always kind of doing both, and that's what I'm saying. It's like I had these two sides of me, and then because I used to write poetry, I didn't used to yeah. ever write anything or comedy. And none of this is going to make real sense. <laughs> but um, finally, you know what I would say to answer your question more seriously, is that I think that the way I ended up having my writing be, which is writing for actors, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, it, it uses all my acting, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. I mean, I like getting to act once in a while. It's a nice treat. But basically, I feel like that all that acting I did gets funneled into the way I write for actors. Yeah, that's an interesting thing. And it's come up once or twice on these panels. Um, how much, I mean, is it, are you talking about character work, essentially? Uh, yeah, I'm talking about... I feel like I'm dominating. No, no, no. This is how it goes. The, it's, okay. it's, we're, uh, we're here to learn. Early going. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm talking about um, the... What would, an actor, what would an actor want out of a scene? Interesting. And what would make it really exciting for the actor to be in the scene? Mm-hmm. Ra- rather than just another scene. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Those kind of questions are the kind that haunt my dreams, <laughs> basically. That's very interesting. Uh, and it does, again, it, you know, it's a, a way of approaching writing from a very character-based standpoint, which is fantastic. Well, if you're like me, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not writing in animation, so my, my life is in, inexorably linked with, mm-hmm. write, with actors. Yeah. And you want to inspire the actor because otherwise you have an uninspired actor and you know it sounds like I've said this before to people but the thing that I always say that I think is really true is that you know 
there's this thought that you might have that, oh, I'm going to write it, and then this incredible actor is going to make it amazing. Mm -hmm. But that's actually not, I believe, how it works at all. I mean, I think what happens is you have to make it something that would attract in, like magnetize in, that incredible actor. Um, because the actor is going to shine through what you've mm-hmm. set up, through the setup you've created. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. And that's a very different mindset than going, I'm just going to write it, and this amazing person will make it something. Yes, that'll happen, but because you were making it that way to begin with. Right, sure. Uh, and that's, it's interesting to me, too, because I think, you know, at, at a certain point, you're faced with writing longer, more structured things as well. Did you struggle with structure when it came time I, to really do that I continue to struggle with structure. Really? I, I'm not going to call it a struggle because I don't believe in saying that right now. I would say more like I find it an ongoing, um, unbelievable challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's the whole challenge of, like, what's a story? And sure. what happens in a story? And what makes this a story? What's this story about? And you know, you were talking about character. It's not really that different from who is this person and what would they really do next. Mm-hmm. That yeah. is structure. I guess it's about that kind of choice making throughout the story. All writing is, I think, I mean, what a horrible way to begin a sentence. That is a bit <laughs> pathetic, but I mean. All good writing. <laughs> sometimes, <laughs> I'll try not to be doctrinaire, but I mean, sometimes writing is just about choices, choices, choices. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's why you want to kill yourself, <laughs> because there's so many choices and you have to keep making them all day long. I mean, would sure. you gentlemen agree? Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're shaking. They're both shaking their heads. It's weird. Please, the yes. jury knows. Podcast. Yes. 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 We agree. I agree. Matt and I agree. He's sitting um, to my left. Matt, let's let's move on to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're from Watertown. Water, well, Watertown, Massachusetts. Yes. <laughs> um, where'd you go to school? Uh, um, Beaver Country Day School. <laughs> After that. Mm-hmm. And then I went to uh, the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, and what did you study in school? I studied history. And English. I ask because this is the thing that comes up very often, especially when I ask people to tweet questions to us about uh, mm-hmm. for the panelists. Does it matter what I study in school no. for, to have a writing career? Not at all. How old, Paul? How old are you? Uh, thirty-three. You're thirty-three. All right. I just want to get so like like oldest, right? Maybe uh-huh. youngest. I'm the <laughs> um, right, but I don't. You know, when I broke in, I'm just going to take over here. Um, Go for it. When I broke into the show business writing. I would say I did not have a dramatic background like you did, or whatever background we're going to find out you had. Um, you can make it up if you it want. Was like, it was like the 90s, and I, I would say there was sort of a cynical, a cynical motivation. Um, like there was, TV was exploding, mm-hmm. and you know, Ivy League-type jackasses like myself were finding out that, like, wow, you could get paid a lot of dough for this seemingly super fun job. <laughs> And like get a free lunch every day and kind of like wear jeans and not have to go to law school and <laughs> get a lot of money and have fun. And like, you know, mission accomplished. But, um, <laughs> you know, it was interesting because like, so we, we all wanted to, and that was a good time to break into television sure. was the 90s. Because, you know, there was Seinfeld was huge, Friends was huge, and Simpsons was huge, like tons of networks, tons of staffs. They were just barfing money and shows at at the world and you know so like that was a good time to like be alive in terms of breaking into show business 
like I may have missed some this is all pre-material I've said a thousand times if you can't tell uh, I've missed some good sexual revolutions in terms of my generational age but I really hit it square on the money for like the breaking into television <laughs> revolution like it seems like everyone was fucking before me and they're all fucking now and they were not fucking in the 80s and 90s anyway enough not enough anyway but uh, but I what's interesting is that you know it was much easier then to break in, which is like, I guess a lot of you were concerned with that issue of breaking in and careers and stuff. It was just, everyone was looking for people who looked like me and sounded like me and was the next me. I mean, a lot, a lot of them are not, are not working now, those other me's out there. And I was lucky enough to get onto a pretty solid franchise and not, and not let go. But I feel like I'm, I have more writerly concerns now, now that like, before I wanted to make money and have fun and and like be have an awesome job, and now I feel like I really more every, every day, even though I'm tireder and older, I really want it to be to be better. Now I feel like more more of, an, more of a writer, and like I find myself saying things like, "Let's hold a mirror up to this part of society," which is like you know, like, what, what what what's the truth of this? Like things that I never said to myself once as a, like the first ten years of my writing, like what's the truth of this, or what's our, what are we what are we trying to say here, or any of that stuff. I never thought about any of that. It was very like, oh my god, I just want this job so bad. And then you know, I want to be funny with the with the guys and the girls and be insane and talk about rape all day. And you know, that's what happens a lot in comedy writers' rooms. Uh, did you? But when you were seeking this out, did well, you? Well, nothing's funnier. Of well, course. you know, there's a certain, you know, gallows. Uh, um, did you consider, though, in coming into this, what the, not necessarily what the day-to-day of this would be, because obviously you were thinking of the lunches every day and lunches. getting to hang out I was with thinking a lot about the lunches. funny people, but... I still think about them. You know, how did you know what a television script looked like? Were you prepared for the actual work? Um, I was like... I mean, you know, it's easy to find out about spec scripts and formatting and agents and all that stuff was very easy to find out. And even then, people were saying, oh, it's impossible to break in. It's a one in a billion shot. Well, now it's like a one in a, like, super trillion shot. Good luck. Um, but, like, I don't really thought I knew what writing was at all. Mm-hmm. For a, even though for a long time after, people were paying me to do it. <laughs> like, really, like, to really, and I still don't think I know, but I think I care more, like I said. I think, mm-hmm. like, I just didn't, I learned a lot. I was lucky to have a job where I could learn a lot mm-hmm. from the people around me. I could just sort of shut up and think about, you know, what makes a good, at least a good Simpsons show, if not, like, a good actual mm-hmm. piece of actual, more, you know, smart person, actory, good writing. <laughs> um, do you recall what any of your early scripts looked like or mistakes or... Courier font. Sure. <laughs> Um, um, but do you remember how you approached those scripts? Uh, did you look at samples? Did you write a Did you write a spec in order to you know get an agent or anything like that? Well, yeah, I did. I um, age wise, I wrote a spec Larry Sanders show. Mm-hmm. What what spec did you write? Uh, in college, I wrote a spec Sopranos. So Sopranos. So that's, you're like a generation, <laughs> solid writing generation ahead, younger ahead of me. And uh, but like. Yeah, it was a Larry Sanders and Seinfelds. It was that kind of, and it was sort of the it was the, the era when everyone was finding out. Oh, this was something you could do, mm-hmm. for two reasons. One, TV was ex- explosively profitable 
in new ways. And also, just the I think Seinfeld and The Simpsons sort of were saying to like college college age kind of people, yeah. oh, TV can be smarter, TV can be hipper, TV can be cooler, it can be more uh, sharper and more satirical than ways they were used to more traditional like kind of like slumming it sitcoms you know that people sort of had the perception of like major dad or mm-hmm. whatever like like when i was like in high school and college that were on like kind of gener- more generic luckily there are no bad sitcoms now so <laughs> gener- you know the revolution worked um Phew. whatever but the, those writers are all fine we'd all be happy to have any of those jobs uh, uh. anyway Okay, we'll come. We'll pick up there. That's got a lot of. That's got a lot of stuff out on the table. Yeah, uh, we'll come pick up there. Uh, Paul, yes. Tell Hello. us about uh, breaking in. What is your background? Were you a? Uh, what were your influences? What was stuff you really liked as a youth? Uh, well, I started as a playwright, and mm-hmm. so that's that's how I ended up out here. Um, but the, my influence, and I was influenced as a youth by doing theater, by doing plays, and trying to put on David Mamet plays at high school or. Uh, acting, I did a lot of that until I realized that I didn't have much aptitude for it. Um, but I watched a lot of television. I mean, when I was young, like watching television was watching television and movies. I mean, I think that was what I cared about most. I mean, I cared about it more than practicing piano or exercising at all. I mean, if it was Friday nights and like Misfits of Science was on, then it was time to like watch Misfits of Science. Yeah. Um, and so that's what I did. Uh, and when when did it click for you that this is something that people do for a living, that, or that these are things that are written and not just you know made up by the actors? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I think it was for for playwriting first, mm-hmm. where you know the writer has a great reputation, and I studied it sure. in school, and um, I knew I wanted to do that early. Honestly, I don't think it was until later that I really had a sense of television scripts being written by you know being worked on in writers' rooms, mm-hmm. being written by pairs of people or people individually. Um, and then I think, you know, Quentin Tarantino as auteur screenwriter and buying that book of screenplays that had Reservoir Dogs <laughs> in it and, and Pulp Fiction in it, uh, you know, that was probably the first time I looked at a screenplay and tried to figure out how I was going to write one. And were you uh, making a living uh, writing plays? No. <laughs> no, that Mike just laughed in the crowd. Um, no, not at all. I mean, I, I had um, a, a play of mine was produced after college and then a few years later another one was was produced but the whole time I was uh, I was still living in Rhode Island and mm-hmm. I was working either you know in a liquor store or a bookstore someplace like that because it wasn't enough to get it get it done mm-hmm. but writing all the while mm-hmm. uh, so what brought you out to LA I have a play called manuscript that was in New York in the summer of 2005 and I had wanted to write. Um, I'd wanted to write television badly. Like I said, in, in college, I wrote a, a, an absolutely horrible Sopranos, um, and then a few years later, tried my hand at a, a, a spec, um, like an original. Mm-hmm. I didn't think that worked out particularly well either. But but I really wanted to write TV, although I didn't really have a, a sense of how to m- make that next step. Mm-hmm. So make the next step as far as entering the business, or as far as yeah, entering the you pool? Know, picking up the language. For, of well, television. both. I actually think that's a good question. So both. You know, I hadn't read a lot of. I hadn't read a ton of scripts, and mm-hmm. I had my agent at the time. He gave me. I think he gave me the OC pilot. I mm-hmm. thought it was like really good. So I, I read that. I think that was like the first pilot that I looked at. Mm-hmm. Um, but so I mean, to answer your question, both things. I didn't really know how to throw my hat in the ring in the business for real, and then I didn't know how to put together a television script that I thought really resembled one, mm-hmm. not just in terms of Courier Twelve and the right tabs, but in terms of content and pace. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so that's the right one. What's that? Korea 12. <laughs> I, mean, I guess so. Whatever Final Draft puts in first. Um, I've always I, been so confused about yeah. that. Uh, uh, but something clicked for you along, you know, along the timeline where, because you're working now. Uh, so what was it that, you know, what was the first thing, I guess, either that you got paid for or the first real step into the business that you took? Well, the first step into the, into the television business would be, I mean, it's kind of like Matt just said, I got lucky that my first job was a place that I could really learn. Mm-hmm. So when that play was in New York, um, the man who ultimately became my first boss came to see it. And it was Neil, Neil Baer who ran um, uh, Law & Order SVU and is just finishing up running Gifted Man now. Um, Neil came to see the play, and this was not like a prearranged thing. I think somebody just bought him and it was, brought him, and it, and it was a big stroke of luck. So I, I got a call from my agent. I was still living in Providence at the time. I got a call from my agent um, that Neil Baer from SVU wanted to have lunch with me. I was so clueless. Like, it's impossible to overstate how clueless I was about that, who he was or what the, what the business sure. was or anything. So I, I said, okay, you know, it's, it's a television show, and that's good. So I got on the train, and I remember coming down, you know, on the Amtrak, and I meet him for lunch, and we meet uh, at this cafe down the street from the theater where the play was running, and he was a couple minutes late, and he walked in with two cell phones. It was great. He, he had just found someone's cell phone in the cab, so the first 15 minutes of our lunch was him <laughs> frantically communicating with the owner of the cell phone, and he ultimately returned the cell phone to this person, so I thought, well, he's, he's the Gandhi of electronics uh, and telecommunications, so I loved him pretty, pretty straight away. So he had come to see the play. He didn't think it was 100% shitty, and we had lunch, and he offered me a freelance script. Mm-hmm. So that was, that was my first script in television. Did, did you even know what that meant when Absolutely you Absolutely not. Absolutely <laughs> not. No. Uh, because, you know, there were staffs. Um, they had a staff, but there used to be a, a rule that I think was more strictly enforced. You'd have to ask somebody right. more, um, mm-hmm. uh, more embedded in the Writers Guild than I am to, about this, <laughs> but I think they used to mandate that, like, two scripts a year had yeah. to be freelance. Yeah, yeah I mean, we're, we're very, we do that. We're very strict about that, but arguably you could just blow it off and there'd be no repercussions. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of shows kind of get around it by giving it to writer's assistants or uh-huh. people like that. That was my first assignment, mm-hmm. was, was a, a freelance. And, and uh, were you, again, were you prepared for this? Did you know how to approach even breaking a story for this show? Not at all. It was horrific. It was, <laughs> I, was so, I was so bad at it. I mean, he brought me out that... We picked a story arena, and I came out in se- September, I guess it was. I came out for two weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember going to the offices and like getting my drive on and going to Universal and, and meeting the staff uh, to start working on breaking the story. And it was, I found it to be completely grueling. I mean, thrilling, but really different than trying to figure out a play sure. or one of the spec screenplays that I'd written. In what ways? Can we, can we well, break it apart a little bit? I mean, and I think especially because it was happening on a show like SVU. It's like a well-oiled machine. It's a train that's moving fast. I came on in season seven. They, like, they, know, they know how to do it. So I showed up and not only had to learn the language of an hour-long cop television show, but the, but the language of this firmly established cop television show. And I had, great, I had a great leader in, in Neil Barron, a great tutor, one of their uh, co-EPs at the time, Amanda Green, took me under her wing and, and kind of showed me the ropes. But I just remember after that first day of like you know, seven or eight hours of story-breaking being exhausted. Um, I liked it a lot, but it was really, really new. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, they really, on that specifically, they broke the story with you. Yeah, there, and, was a, there was a lot uh, of help. It was pretty thorough. Yeah, there was a lot of help the first time. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and how long, do you remember how long you had to turn around that script? I had a, I had a long time, but this was, <laughs> but this was only because 
I, I think that was episode like 17 of season seven. I came out early to work on it because they knew I was so clueless. But here's the thing. <laughs> he knew that I was either really, really clueless or just stupid. Because when we were sitting down at lunch, he said to me, he said, so, you know, I'm going to give you this freelance. And he said, do you ever think about moving to L.A.? and trying to staff. Like, do you ever think about that? And I was so, such an idiot. I honestly think I looked at Neil Bear and shrugged. Like, <laughs> just like gave the dumbest answer ever that I would never ever do again. So he's probably thinking, okay, it's a halfway decent play. I don't know if he can write a television script, but he also might be psychotic. So this is going to be interesting. You know, and, and I think brought me out because of that. Oh, interesting. Um, uh, and clearly that was successful. Uh, it wor- the experiment worked. Yeah, so he gave, so he, the, the first episode turned out all right and he gave me a job. So I ended up doing three seasons for Neil. Did you join that season or the next season? I did join that season. Oh, wow. Well, that's pretty awesome. Congratulations. Thank you, Matt. <laughs> I mean, that's hard to do, to like write a freelance yeah. that staff has any respect for, and then to they even like it so much they want to bring you on. That's like a big deal. Yeah. Well, thanks. At least in our dickhead show, it's really hard. <laughs> <laughs> Did you realize that was a big deal at the time? Or again, still clueless? Um, I, I think by that time, I had realized okay. that, that, it was, that it was a big deal, that I should probably not screw it up. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, good. We'll, we'll pick up there, because I want to talk about being immersed in that room. But first, uh, Winnie, let's talk about 30-something. Well, 30-something, just to, just to jump on to what Paul Please. was saying, it's, it's not completely dissimilar, mm-hmm. because, um, again, with my comedy group, uh, which, you know, I'd never made... Any money? We never made any money. I, I guess that would go without saying. Hopefully, <laughs> uh, we did get on David Letterman at one point, but it was towards the end of our group's life, and we weren't as funny as we had been earlier, um, for various reasons that were really more interpersonal than others, um, other reasons. But what I'm trying to say is that um, through a series of events I won't go into, I I found myself on the set of Thirty Something visiting my brother, who's actually a DP. Mm-hmm. Um, I won't deal with all the all the all the different co- coincidences, but basically, one of the big um, producers of Thirty Something, Richard Kramer, struck up a conversation with me, and his brother had actually at one point produced our comedy group. This is all wow. very coincidental and um, weird, but, um, but that this is, is how these things this is, work. This so is how often. these things do happen, and yeah. being for all those years in the comedy group. You know, which many people might have looked at going, boy, you're really wasting your life and time. What, what are you doing? Really led in a way that I could Absolutely. never have predicted because, um, because then Richard said, if you wrote a spec, I, uh, th- a spec 30 something, I would read it. Oh, really? Now, that was a very obviously generous thing to say. I was also a bit clueless at that time, and I, even though I was in my 30s, and I did not really understand the, how big a a generous offer that was. Yeah. But I did write it, and they did uh, buy it, and they did shoot it. Although what? I, yes. <laughs> um, no, I'm saying, that well, I know that doesn't happen very often, but, but I'm just saying it's it not happen. unlike yeah. um, Paul. Because, I mean, they didn't shoot it as I wrote it. We, we rewrote it together. We rebroke it. We rewrote yeah, let's, it. Let's talk about that process. Just, st- again, step back for a minute. And when you approached, you know, you're approaching an hour-long not very funny show. It had comedy in it. Well, you when know, you go back and look at them, you'll see it's pretty funny. It's not well, funny. But it's like, those human like this, moments, you know, right? It's not funny like the Simpsons. No, but it, yeah. it's, it had it had wry moments of absolutely, yeah. absolutely, which has really been a hallmark of everything you've done. These very human uh, comic moments, foibles, exactly. Yeah. Um, 
But how, how long had you been in this comedy group when this opportunity arose? Oh, no. I was already long out of the comedy group. Oh. I was old. I was in my 30s. That's I had old. my daughter. She was a toddler. I mean, I, I had already... I had done that in my 20s. This is what I'm trying to impart. I mean, look, it's, it's none of my business <laughs> what any of you do. But what I'm saying is, is that when I was in my 20s in New York, being in my comedy group, not making any money, right. it seemed like... It seemed like you could say, boy, what a stupid thing to be doing. But what I'm saying, and we didn't even get that well known, but we did perform a lot all over New York City, which, which will get you seen. They were seen. called Monty Python. Have you heard of them? In comedy, for comedians who like comedy. I don't like to throw that around. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm just saying that then years later, and by the way, I didn't, it's not like I did the comedy group and never wrote again, and then I wrote, you know, another element of this is that I didn't, I was always writing and writing other stuff. So that by the time I met Ed and Marshall, I, I, was, I wasn't a person who'd been sitting around going, gee, I'd love to write someday. I had been writing quite a lot. And I was a better writer than when I was in my 20s sure. because I'd been writing. But still in all, what I'm saying is, you know, these things do happen in a career where you, you put in the time in something. And I was doing it just because we, we loved it. I mean, we were just having a lot of fun. I mean... But I realized later that it was a linchpin. I don't think I'm using that correctly, but it was a very important thing mm-hmm. in my life, more important than, than, than words can say, you know, to be perfectly cliche. And yet people looking at it from above or, you know, Martians looking at it or whatever might, might have said, you know, what a, what, a, what, a, what a waste of time, what a sad little pathetic life, you know, but... It was it was giving me everything I needed. Martians hate sketch comedy. <laughs> it's so true. <laughs> Those were always our harshest critics. Um, but you know, I think you know what I mean, right? Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. But yeah, if you hadn't done this, these opportunities wouldn't have arisen, and it was yeah. It, was and also it, kind it of... all just arose, as I'm sure you can relate to, out of just first of all wanting to get something going. Mm-hmm. And secondly, these were my friends. We all thought we, each other were funny, and we were having a good time. And, you know, it arose organically, you might almost say. Mm-hmm. So what kind of stuff were you writing in the interim? Was it everything? Well, I wrote a musical that, with, with my friend in New York, uh, I don't write music, so it was, I was lyrics and book, and mm-hmm. he was, and it did get produced, and this is, I'm making it sound like it took this long, but it was, <laughs> a, you know, mi- millions of years it passed. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was like, it was like a, six-year process or something, but it did eventually get produced and and not liked in New York. Um, And it was very small, so it's not like it made a big not like. It was like a tiny one. Mm -hmm. Uh, But right around that time is when no uh, no connection, but that's right around the time is when my husband and I with our daughter, we moved out out here. We moved out here because of my husband's career, not because of my career. Mm -hmm. But at the time, you know, and I've said this before too, but you know, when you have a big um, failure, well, it it was a big failure to me. It was a small failure to the world, but um, we're minuscule. But to me, it it was a big failure. When you have that happen, it can be actually the best thing that can happen to you. And in, in my case, it was, because it really brought me to a, a, very, good, a very good place, mm-hmm. as they say, where I really felt like I had to ask myself, because uh, what, what I'm trying to say is we got very rather bad reviews. 
And I had to ask myself, did I, was that why I was doing it? And what, would I, what was I actually doing? And what was my actual goal? And I, it took me months, and actually I questioned this. And I actually questioned if I even was a writer and if I was even cut out for it. But when I got through the whole questioning process, I felt a lot better. I had more of an understanding that I wasn't really that interested in what a bunch of people that wrote for magazines that I would never meet like, thought of me. I, was actually, I actually felt a little stronger. Wow. And that was right around the time I met Marshall and Ed. So I think I was very open to the idea of just, let me just write this spec script. Let me just see what comes of that. Like, what you, used, you both used the word learning, and I learned so much from being on that show and, and knowing those men. And it was all about learning for me. At that point, I have to say, the money was great, but it was like the fact that I was earning a living was such a novelty. But it was, it was nice, but that wasn't really what was... Yeah. The, the big deal, the big headline was I, I was around people that I was learning from, and I, I just soaked it up like a sponge. Yeah, we often hear about that first immersion into a show being this unbelievable crash course, not just in the writing, but also in how to be in a room, you know, the politics of a show. Everything, like that. everything. Can you, pick, can you think of a few things that you took from that show that, are, that well, you still use? Well, you were talking use? about story, mm-hmm. and these guys, uh, this is Marshall Herskovitz and Ed Zwick, they're very, very good about story. And I always thought I was, and I probably was right, I, I always felt that I was weak in that department. Um, and just sitting with them, and, you know, we, we would sit and break stories the three of us, it wouldn't, be, it wouldn't be a big room full of people. It would be whatever writer they were working with and them. And they would really have this kind of way where they did it. it really, they really questioned. It was like, well, what would she do next? And what would really happen? And what would happen if that was happening to you? What would you do? And it was really this way of making it very personal. And I don't mean like technically personal, but... Mm-hmm. It really gave me a, a sense of, well, I think, first of all, anytime you're doing something all the time, you get better at it. And you're pushed in TV, you were also alluding to this, uh, of how quick it, the train, the train, it's a, it is a train and it is, it is quick. That's a blessing for someone like me who wants to sit there and worry and be, and, 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 and question every choice. Mm-hmm. So, in other words, if it's going by very quickly, one of the things that t- TV really helped me with was going with my gut. I know this sounds awfully cliche, but if, if it's going so quickly, you really can't c- mm-hmm. question yourself constantly. I mean, do you agree with me? Um, I feel like going with your gut is a very important first step in anything to get that horrible bad version out of the way. <laughs> like, to right. sometimes I feel like, all right, I'm just going to write this fast, go with my gut, and then this will tell me where to go, and then I will show it to my, my trusted co-producing associates, and instead of me obsessing by myself forever, trying to like make this perfect, and then that'll go on TV, which has yet to happen in, ever in, in my 15 years and like 25 episodes I've written to the show, it's more like I just want to write something fast, just so that will st- almost start the discussion mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. of what a great, or hopefully a great episode will be. And, I mean, I think that's not a very functional or, or efficient way to be a writer or to make a show, but that's just kind of weirdly the way we've developed it. So, like, you know, we don't have... The, the Simpsons, like, we don't have... 
that guy who just will go write an unbelievable draft and will change a couple things, will polish it for a day and put it through the pipeline. I mean, we just we have too many people and we have too much time, so we just change everything. <laughs> so you can either make that a, a, a negative or you can make that a positive. I feel like there's a way to make it a positive where you just you write a draft and that just gets the discussion going and then you really figure out what's going to be the good version of that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sure that would be very frustrating to a lot of real writers. I, I, just, well, I just pointed at the real people on my left and right. <laughs> but, um, but do you guys think, and, and I mean, I don't know, that's all the shows... That's my experience. I mean, yeah. I, we rewrite constantly. I mean, I rewrite everything. I mean, rewriting to me is almost a word I wouldn't even think of because it's just, I'm just constantly writing. Right. I mean, everything is rewriting. Right. But on, say, on 30-something, were you given the autonomy to rewrite on your own, or was it rewritten by the room? No, there was no room, and they did okay. let you rewrite it on your own. They, they were very unusual. It's very it's unusual television, but they would be very hands-on with notes and direction. Okay. And it was, you know, they, they definitely weighed in and made it much, much better. Mm-hmm. And you wrote draft after draft. Sure. It, was, it wasn't like polishing. It was like right. you wrote draft after draft after draft, definitely. But I just meant I had never experienced before the speed, mm-hmm. you know, the level of the... <laughs> the <laughs> when you call it a train, it, it is absolutely that. So it's like that actually agreed with me. Part of my neurotic qualities were pushed forward that way mm-hmm. rather than hanging back and wait, and waiting, you know, waiting for the perfect idea, you know, now it's more like, you know, just if, you, if it pops into my head, I'm going to use it. I may change it later, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use it. You know what I mean? Sure. Yeah, I mean, I guess it is in many ways, as Matt said, starting the discussion. But it's the discussion yeah. with yourself and then your, the whoever's yourself, giving right? you notes, your showrunners. Uh, Matt, let's talk about that Simpsons room for sure. a minute. Um, it seems intense. Oh, no, it's not intense. <laughs> it, we'd um, all be very appalled at ha- if you watched a video of us all day, you would all be furious that you didn't have that job. <laughs> I'm certain that's true. Um, but, but tell us about the process, and has it changed over the years? I mean, we had Dana here a couple of weeks ago, uh, but he hasn't been on the show in a while. Uh, Dana. Um, has the process changed in the past even 10 years? It doesn't really change. It, 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 I, I think our process is a little more unique Maybe every show is unique, but like we really change a lot of stuff, and not always for the better and not always for the worse. But when, 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 the, when the system is working, <laughs> it really is like honing in on what's the funniest way to tell the story and what's the best way to make our satirical point clear. Mm-hmm. Like let's, let's get really excited about an idea and then figure out the best way to tell that story using this awesome universe that we're lucky enough to be able to tell stories with. This, which is a, we have one of the best palettes for sure. doing both character and satiric, satirical stories and a lot of different kind of comedy uh, that's ever been on TV, I think. And like, I don't think a lot of other shows have as many sort of tools uh, you know, open to them as we do to make in how you do a show. Like We can really do almost anything. Are you drawn personally to a certain type of story? I just, want the, I just want to have a point at the end. I just want to have people to go, oh, that's what they were talking about. Mm-hmm. Even if it was an observation about a feeling mm-hmm. or if it was just like a, about a, a satirical thing about the world. Mm-hmm. Can you give us some, I mean, be specific about well, episodes you've written. Well, there was one, okay, I'll tell you one that 
I didn't write, but I kind of produced pretty intensively mm-hmm. that I'm pretty proud of. And it was sort of a departure for us. It was it aired re- relatively recently. It was, uh, it was a show called The Book Job, and it was about uh, Homer and Bart find out that all these tween books, these like Twilight type books, and you know, uh, are kind of group written by, by assignment by these kind of mega corporations that own, you know, the kids' fantasy world of kids' fantasy books. Right. And so they said, well, we're gonna we're gonna write one of those ourselves and make a lot of money, and it's gonna be like a heist. And we we, we wrote it like a heist, and they assembled a team. And even though there was no laws being broken, it was like a, it was like a heist. And they like they scoped they scoped out the bookstore to steal ideas and. They were very like I like they were cynical about it. And Lisa says, "Fuck that! I'm going to write something by myself, and I'm going to show you guys. This is how real writers do it. And you guys are just, you know, disgusting." <laughs> so Lisa can't get anything done because she's just procrastinating. Whereas the team is is highly <laughs> is highly efficient, and they write the book and they they sell the book. I mean, it's very silly, but and it's sort of like an Ocean's Eleven type heist without any. And the heist, the, the, the score is just selling the book. And they sell it, and then when it's about to be published, or they get the galleys, and it's, they've, they've changed it from a book about trolls to a book about vampires. And they're just, they're, the, the, the team, the heisters, can't believe it, because they didn't think they cared. Right. They thought they just were in it for the money. And then they realized that, oh, fuck, we did care, because now everyone's doing vampires. I mean, we know we're bad. But we're not that bad. We're not vampire bad. <laughs> so they then, then it, what, what was a figurative heist becomes a literal heist, and they break into the book building and kind of switch a bunch of discs and stuff, and it's like a crazy, you know, <laughs> techno-bullshit, techno-thriller parody. And they, they, uh, they get the right book, sort of in, in, in right. the book that they care about, and they, they tear up the check, and they, they get the... They kept a million dollar check, which is insane. They would never do that. <laughs> but and they get the right book in the stores, and they you know they feel good because they see the kids writing it, the kids reading it and enjoying it. And I felt like that was like a kind of a validation of of my existence. That episode, <laughs> it was like when you write something with a bunch of your pals, even if it's not very good, you still care about it. <laughs> and that was sort of a, that was what that was sort of the point at the end of that show. It was sort of about group writing versus individual creativity and. It was just a fun area to explore, and the world of these kind of kids' fantasy books was a fun way to tell that story, and mm-hmm. plus we get to bring in this insane visual filmic parody of, you know, yeah. heist movies, and uh, it just, you know, it's like, oh my god, we, we're kind of, we have a little point here. This is an interesting world, and we're saying something. And mm-hmm. So that was very you know, gratifying to be able to put that on TV. Mm-hmm. But then we just did one where Homer was a tow truck driver. <laughs> I don't know what the point of that was. <laughs> um, you seem well qualified to talk about uh, politics of the room. Yeah. Uh, how to behave in a room. You know, a lot of these guys... Well, maybe we should all, we'd all just chime in stuff, maybe. I mean, it doesn't have to be yeah, that, I mean, that, like, that would be great. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll start. I'll but I think, say, you know, all these rooms are very different. A comedy room is often... But, like, sorry, I think I there's certain stand. universal things. I mean, I've give, I, I had a friend who I really like, and I, he just got his first job, and I... I gave him this amazing speech of how to behave, and I really wish I had written down all that stuff because he was like, oh, my God, Selman, you just nailed it. <laughs> and I don't forget. I mean, the first thing I would say is hide your fear. You know, pretend, pretend that you belong there. You know, you, you, deep down, you don't believe you belong there. You believe there was a mistake, and you don't belong there. Just hide that. Just pretend it's not true. Like, do one of those fucking Stuart Smalley self-affirmations. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> where like you're like I belong, I deserve this job, I'm smart, I'm. In fact, if you do believe it, there's something wrong with you, and you shouldn't be. You're never going to be a good writer. Um, but because they, you know, so the people running the show, when you get your, when you're like the entry level person, they're not looking to, for you to save the day. They're not looking for you to do their job. They're just looking for you to be an asset, to help them when they say, I need help with this. And every day you should be going to work saying, how can I help you? That should be the first question in your mind when you show up every day. How can I help the showrunner and producers of this show make a better show? And sometimes that's shutting the fuck up and getting out of their way and just, or laughing at their jokes when they're, when they're feeling stressed out. And, and you know, waiting for that moment to make a, sort of a, a thoughtful suggestion. And then if they don't like it, just... Act as if you said something really. You know, pretend in your mind it was good, but don't don't press it any further. You know, mm-hmm. just let it go. Yeah, yeah you Paul, you're I'm, nodding. What? Uh... Yeah, I mean, I think that I think that's excellent advice, and and um, to to speak when spoken to, and speak when it counts, instead of just speaking to speak, would be good, yes. good advice. But also, just in terms of being in the room, if you're on a show where there's a lot of heavy lifting to be done, a lot of work, a lot of complicated breaking to be done, like be willing and excited to be there in the room. Like mm-hmm. come early and stay late and learn to love that part of the process because, you know, um, when, you don't, when you don't have it or you're in between shows, you'll miss it. No matter how many meals you eat at the table in the writer's room um, and how annoying it seems in the moment, like it's, it's pretty great to be uh, confined with a bunch of smart people trying to crack problems about story. I mean, think about it. Like... It's just, I mean, it's just a good job, so like it, God damn it. That would be, that would be one, one thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. At least act like you like it. Yeah, that's good advice. Yeah. Uh, can we talk specifically, uh, Winnie, about some of the rooms you've been in? Well, I haven't been in a lot of writers' rooms because, because I've worked at Bedford Falls, that's Marshall and its company, and they don't really have a room, as I was alluding to before. Mm-hmm. What they'll do is they'll tend to be the two of them, um, with with a with whoever's going to write that episode, but um, I did I did kind of um, with so called life. Um, I guess it would have been sometimes it was them and me and who and whoever's going to write the episode. Um, sometimes it was just me and that person, and sometimes it was just me and them, and not you know obviously. I I, I can't really explain it, but. It's still, I was still nodding my head before because this, it's still, even if it's a tiny room, it's still a room. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot, a lot has to do with, I think, the, um, the thing we were talking about before about learning. I mean, it's a great, it's a great place to learn. But if you're talking too much, you won't, you won't learn because you're, you're talking too much. On the other hand, you can't be there ha, there's this thing my friend always says pitch without shame mm-hmm. which maybe doesn't apply to the youngest person in the room but you know it's something i've had to think about you know sometimes you you just have i mean it's not even sometimes i would say most of the time i would say 99% of the time i have to sort of say the thing that i think is a stupid idea mm-hmm. um now this really applies to whether or not i'm working in tv or if I'm working on a musical or if I'm at home trying to write my play or wherever I am, I have to allow myself to like say the stupid idea mm-hmm. and play with it and, and, and say, is that, is that too stupid? You know? And, and, and kind of, I just have to like let go of some shame about, you know, and, and that's, 
that's kind of something I feel like I learned in TV because it again this feeling of desperation for the idea like mm-hmm. where where's it going to come from and it's not going to come if you if you're constantly holding back going well that's not good enough that's not good enough and it's all about people what what somebody might say when I say the stupid idea mm-hmm. right yeah I feel like one and of the most then, common phrases is this is not it but this or, is, this not is it, a but, dumb idea yeah. but and you know exactly. it'll at least start the conversation and that's kind of how I live I mean I feel like that's important whether I'm in a room or I'm mm-hmm. by myself well how does that work by yourself I mean none of you guys work with partners uh, and so it's, you know, it's easy for me to do. I work with a partner. I can say, this is not the idea, but maybe it'll uh, kickstart something in him. But, you know, how do you chase down an idea on your own and know if it's right or know if, you know, you're going down the wrong way? Well, I think what, what Matt said about that first draft that comes out, like just getting that first draft out, because for, for me, if I'm writing something alone, if it's a play or a spec or anything... I almost can't take it seriously until I can look at the, the pages mm-hmm. down there, and, and it's almost that becomes me uh, editing someone else's first draft. Not mm-hmm. that it's a total like raising cane split personality <laughs> situation, but, yeah. but I, it, it isn't real to me if it's just on the screen, and so it's starting that kind of conversation with the thing on the page to mm-hmm. be able to look at it or throw it across the room and say, I don't, I don't think that's right. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's like we were talking before. It's times like that when I do do envy people who work with partners, mm-hmm. you know, because it must be nice to to have a real person. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, yeah, I mean, I just as soon as I write anything, I just like I, I just want to show this to the room. I just want to show this to the the team and see what we th- really think of it. Like I will then, like that's why I sort of I don't I, we want, I want people not to like take too long on drafts, just so they it's not really an efficient way to put the show out. Just like just, just get the structure we agreed on down mm-hmm. and then let's get it to the room. I mean, stories should be broken as early as possible in the process and hopefully you fall in love with it and really think it's good as early as possible because then everything else will be more efficient down the road. But that doesn't always happen. And I sometimes, like, I had to write one that we didn't really break in the room on my own. Like, I pitched it, people laughed at it and we had a little bit of discussion and then I went and wrote it and I... Now it's 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 still about the same thing, but it's it, it's about a brand new thing because I just didn't didn't ultimately trust what I came up with on my own hmm. again. Hmm. Um, Paul, I want to ask you. We've I was talking to a friend the other day about these panels, and we've had this sort of interesting real time unfolding of Terra Nova. Because uh, we started, we started these panels last March, and you know mm-hmm. we had David Fury on, and Craig Silverstein, and Jose Molina, uh, and now we know Terra Nova is not coming back. Uh, tell us about your experience on that show. How did you, uh, how did you get involved with it, and what was the atmosphere like there? I mean, we heard super, a little bit from Jose. Yeah, it was really just easy and smooth sailing, hundred <laughs> percent, kind of. Of, of the time for it the showed thing. on screen yeah and everybody just in the press just knew that it was a slam fucking dunk um, so how did I I mean how did I become involved yeah so I mean I've you know I listen to the podcast I, I love the podcast so you've had Silverstein and those guys here um, I came I came a little bit late when they were putting together I think what Jose called like the room 2.0 mm-hmm. um, I think they'd been up for about three or four weeks when I, when I joined up and it was like late last March it was about a year ago, maybe beginning of April. Um, and at that time, they had, they, had the, they had the pilot, 
and then they had a plan for the new material that was going to, the, the infamous new material that was going to go into the, to the pilot. So They I, being the showrunners the, or the, the new, current writers? The new showrunners. Okay. Uh, the, the new showrunner, Rene Echevarria, and, and of course Brandon Braga, they had a, okay. you know, a plan for the stuff that was going to fill out the, the second hour, fill out the two-hour premiere. Right. Um, so when I got to work on my first day, um, I watched what was there of the pilot and read kind of this long beat sheet document of this you know, awesome stuff, a lot of this, the future stuff and like the prologue um, for the episode. I read that and that's, you know, that's what I did on, on day one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, and what was the, again, I mean, you know, we joke about it, but what was the tenor in the room as the show aired and then progressed? Well, I mean, the t- before, bef- long before it aired, before they even started shooting episode three and the, and the, the pilot, re- uh, the additional material for the pilot, I mean, things weren't necessarily looking good because they'd had trouble the first time around, but there was a sense of new hope that, mm-hmm. that like, this team with, with, you know, with Renee at the helm and, like, everybody was pulling together and they were going to make this show, which, which really, in retrospect, to skip to the end, that, that kind of is what happened, mm-hmm. right? Because I, I, I honestly think that an incredible amount of credit has to go to Renee and to Brandon, too, because when I came on in March... I think there were a lot of people who thought this was never going to go on the air okay. and they were never going to see any fucking dinosaurs. <laughs> but we looked back over our shoulders at you know, the end of the year and there were 13 hours of Terra Nova. Mm-hmm. So and, that, two, and two dinosaurs. That's right. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I'm sure there are more. But so, again, to jump to the end, I think mm-hmm. that is something that happened. But at the beginning, prognosis was not necessarily amazing. And there were arguments that have been well-documented on this podcast about what the tone of the show was going to mm-hmm. be um, who it was going to be for, the answer was always everyone, mm-hmm. um, with a capital E. Uh, and, 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 so that, and I think that was a struggle. Um, only does, does, sorry, let me interrupt for one sec. In those arguments, which I would imagine you know, have to spill over into the room too, does a writer at your level get input? Um, <laughs> yeah, in the sense that we... Uh, it, it only spills over into the room to... To, to a certain extent, because, mm-hmm. because a, a boss like Renee is going to shield the staff from a lot of the stuff that, you know, that is happening above our heads, uh, which I think is one of the best things a showrunner can do, so that the room can stay a safe space, even if you are having three meals a day there. Um, uh, but do we get input? Yeah, because we were all trying to push the show in the right direction. But that being said, if anybody watched the show or read any of the blogs about the show, it kind of significantly changed gears about halfway through. Mm-hmm. And it went from being a show with um, standalone episodes where we did the memory loss episode or, or the first murder in Terranova episode or the episode where the girl from Aliens shows up. And like, so there was that. And then about midway through, it became more serialized and we got to lean harder into the mythology, which is where we, you know, we, we were excited to finally take it. Yeah. So eventually we think our 13th hour was the best hour. And I think that, you know, if there's a missed opportunity at not getting a, a second crack at the show, it's that, like, some of the stuff we talked about and what that 13th hour um, nodded to could have been, could have been pretty cool. Hmm. That's interesting. Is there anything you've, uh, that you'll take from your experience there, uh, whether it's, you know, about looking for the next job or about uh, experiencing that job? Um, well, I took from it, you know, collaborators and friends that I'll keep and hopefully go work on, on other jobs with. But one of your previous guests, when, when talking about just shows in general, but I think it might even have been about Terra Nova, talked about the choice between working on a show when, where the creator is the showrunner mm-hmm. versus when there's a showrunner brought in. Um, and I think Renee did heroic work, but you know, he, 
he, he was not the creator of Terra Nova, and he came, on to, he came on to a situation that was fraught and ultimately got the trains running on time. Mm-hmm. Mostly this panel is about trains, <laughs> um, and I'm going to keep it that way. I appreciate it. Uh, so, I mean, what I would take from it, uh, let's say, on, let's say in, a, in a perfect world, I, I randomly wrote some pilot that's sold, and we shot, and we're going to air. At this point, for me, I don't know that I'm necessarily... They would hook me up with somebody. Mm-hmm. You know, they would bring in a showrunner. They, I think at, at this point, they would be idiotic not to. And, I, and if that were to happen, I would do my damnedest to work with that person and make them feel ownership of the thing and yeah. make them feel like it really was theirs. Because all that matters is putting together a good hour. And it's, mm-hmm. it's hard if you're figuring out the first half of the season of Terra Nova. But I, I kind of think breaking an hour or a half hour, it's like it ain't easy. Mm-hmm. No. I mean, yeah, I mean, which no, is piggyback on what you were saying, I mean, sharing ownership, I think, is a good phrase, because, like, make the, make the staff, I mean, when you guys are all showrunners, here's some advice, make the staff feel like the show is a little bit theirs, and not just do what I say, it's mine, and you're mm-hmm. just here to feed me, I mean, make them, inject them with your passion of, of shared awesomeness, that when this thing is on TV, it's something we all did, and we, even the, even the guy who sucks in the corner, make him feel like, you you know you really want to fire but can't make don't don't let him know that you know like make him feel like it's part of his show too you know just and I think you know it, that you will get the best work out of your people if they feel like it's everybody's show yeah that's great advice also just hire people that are better than you that's that's the, the, I mean now that we're giving showrun this is a seminar for showrunners right um, <laughs> just hire people that are so good that you know they're going to deliver awesome stuff and you can just kind of pick and choose and kick back and and let them blow you away. Don't. Yeah. When people, I mean, it's like when people work above their level, it's a pretty amazing thing, and it says a lot about their talent, both as, like, collaborators in the, in the room. But, like, I was just saying that, in my opinion, I can only speak for myself, I think the best hour of, of Terra Nova was the 13th one, and if you're into digging around IMDb to see where people's levels are, like, that was written by our staff writer pair. Oh, really? You know what I'm saying? Like, wow. so if, if you're given the opportunity to work above your level, like... The, the tags and the labels, what, what the Writers Guild describes to it, it's not as important as what you bring to your script mm-hmm. or what you bring to the table in the room. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, Winnie, before we turn over to questions from the audience, uh, let's talk about my so-called life. Mm-hmm. Um, this will, I mean, it, it's still being talked about online as one of the greatest shows of the past 25 years. Um, let's talk a little bit. I'm curious about having just watched the pilot again last night uh, or yesterday, I'm curious about um, bringing this script to the network. Um, yeah. Obviously, you had Herskovitz and, and Zwick with you, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, they early had on. A, well, they had, in other words, they owed ABC a pilot. They mm-hmm. had a deal to, to create a, another pilot. Oh, okay. And they wanted me, after two years of working on there or something, they wanted me to do that. And... We sat and talked for a long time about, like, what would this pilot be? And they had the idea that it would be... It's, it's so interesting in terms of TV lore, I think. It has to do with... They were just talking about this when they were honored recently at the Guild. But, see, they started... You guys are too young to know, to know this, but there was a show when I was, like, I guess in my very early 20s called Family with Seda Thompson and um, a young Christy McNichol who played the, the teen, Buddy. And... Right out of AFI, Marshall and Ed, their first job in TV was at Family. And when they were, they were young writers, they were, you know, they're my age, so they were like, you know, young 20s. And they were frustrated because they would get these ideas. They would get these ideas of like what Buddy could do, like how she could 
walk into a room and tell her, tell her parents to fuck off and basically you know, be a teen. And they would get the note, um, N-O-B, not our buddy. That would be the note. from, And they loved these showrunners, by the way. They taught them a lot. But they had an investment that this teen would not misbehave in that way. And they had, so the two guys, I, this is unbeknownst to me. I'm just, you know, I'm just a girl, you know, who's got her first job on 30-something. And, you know, the mo- a mom, a mom of a toddler. And, um, you know, in love with these guys and basically just thrilled to be working for them. But they're, they have this whole built-up thing of, like, we would like to do a teen on TV that, like, the, like the real, a real teen. So they lay that on me, and basically, I'm, I am seriously, I mean, talk about being stupid. I'm literally going, well, that's a good idea until we think of, like, a real idea. Because <laughs> to me, I didn't quite get it. My daughter was about... Um, mm-hmm. I think she was seven. I was really immersed in what, what it was like to be seven. I couldn't, rem- you know, I wasn't meeting any teenagers. Anyway, it's not important now, but the point is, what, what's my point? I mean, <laughs> my, po- my point is that um, when it came to the network, we went in, and yeah, the, the network was very much in love with Marshall and Ed at the time, mm-hmm. and very naturally going to kind of order, a po- you know, if they said, we want Winnie to write this, they were like down with that. And I, I had to pitch it. I pitched it with them in the room. And how, how does the pitch for that show go? This is how it went. It was like, and by the way, when my opinion is, and this is just my opinion, but when you pitch something, I mean, first of all, of course it has to be, it has to be entertaining, you know, and it's entertainment. Um, and I am funny, despite what you might what he said? <laughs> no, I'm just teasing. I think I'm totally te- the funniest show I've ever seen. <laughs> it is so funny, but I mean, I I can be that funny. Show actually, kind of was about a little bit inspired, inspirational for like wanting to be a comedy writer because yeah. they were always throwing the ball around. Yeah, and, yeah, they were. That was sort agency. of like a comedy, anyway. Yeah. Anyway, um, but um, at, when I, when I'm pitching, I, it's very important to me, to get laughs and be funny and be interesting. But what I'm trying to say is that at ABC at that time, it was, di- as, you, as you so eloquently said, it was a different time. <laughs> let's, just, let's just say that. Um, I actually never even crossed my mind that they might say no. I, I really didn't. But what I'm trying to say is that networks have this way of they listen to you and they hear what you're saying but it's almost like that cartoon with the dog. <laughs> you know, they, they're hearing their own tape in, in their head. And like we were saying, like, you know, we're going to show a teen, like, we're just going to show her, like, her soul. We're going to bear it. And they're like, wow, you know. But when we did the show, they never stopped being worried about it. And they never stopped asking me, who is this for? And they never stopped... And my answer was, whoever likes it. <laughs> and um, they never stopped being very concerned that it was dark, quite dark, which mm. I never thought it was that dark, but, you know, whatever. How many were there? Nineteen. Yeah. So what I'm trying to say is, in my long-winded way, is that they, they, yes, they put, you know, I'm not complaining. They put it on the air, which was great. And they also did let us, you know, they let us do our show, which mm. is huge. It's, it's, it's absolutely big. Um, 
and I'm so I'm very grateful. But I just don't want there to be a misunderstanding that they that they totally got the show, sure. that they they did not get the show, <laughs> and they they were very very confused right up until the end. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, I I was in watching the pilot. I was curious about. You know what a network executive's reaction. Oh, they were so would worried. Be. I mean, we made it in. I mean, Claire was. Uh, but even <laughs> like at the script stage, it's such naturalistic dialogue, which I guess Thirty Something had wasn't also. Wasn't until um, you know, may, you know, this might have been an instance of Marshall and Ed shielding me from um, how much they hated the script, um, because my, I was never. I was never, really? um, yeah, I, I never That's had great. those kind of conversations. It's amazing that they um, could. And in could subsequent episodes, in. I had plenty <laughs> of conversations of how much they hated a script, but not, not for the pilot. Mm-hmm. You know, actually, you know, people really liked the pilot, but they were so, they were again, it, it's so dark. It's so they were so worried, and it was a very emotional pilot. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, I think, you know, it, it, it always. Look, I, I'm, now I sound you. You know, I'm not making much sense because, truthfully, if you looked at those guys' work, and then you looked at anything I'd ever written for for thirty something, say, you wouldn't have been puzzled, you know, yeah. to put it to put two and two together and come up with that pilot or any of the nineteen episodes. Mm-hmm. But that's what I'm trying to say about the business. And by the way, I don't really think about it that much. I try to block it out because I think it's better not to think about it too much. Mm-hmm. Do you ever? Th- I'm sorry, to interrupt. Do you ever think, wow, would, would, would I wish that I'd have been able to do that show in the kind of FX, AMC, HBO era of like, you know, era now where you could just do the, the really pure, not network contaminated at all version and just make it, the, you know, like like the Breaking Bad or the Mad Men kind. Like that seems like the kind of show that well, if it's you could like do that now you would really have been able to like go nuts. Well, I like. The way I would answer that is I would like to, to maybe do a show like that, like before I completely retire or to die or whatever, but <laughs> I would like to do that with another show, but I don't wish I could do that with So Called Life because it was so, it was a perfect experience. Right. And, and honestly, I didn't, I didn't feel censored because actually they didn't really censor us because they, they, more, they were, that's why I say it was a different time. They were quite puzzled and worried and very vocally so, but they didn't actually tried to micromanage us. Hmm. And that probably had to do with their relationship with Marshall and Ed. They had never established that with 30-something. 30-something is weird-ass. If you watch it, <laughs> it has all kinds of stuff going on that is not normal for network television. I mean, yeah, we, we have the same. I mean, we're in the same weirdly unique it, It's weird, so, yeah. I mean, we, we don't get any creative notes. Only from, our, yeah. only from our internal team do we creative note ourselves to death. But... Like, there's no, although there's so many different kinds of network notes. Now we get notes about, you can't say Tums because Fox might be doing a deal with Rolaids. And so, like, we can't do, no one can say Tums because then the Rolaids people are mad. So it's, not, it's not like it's illegal to say Tums. And it's not like it's offensive to say tongues, Tums. It's just like, no, what if we made a deal with Rolaids? Or, or Tums didn't pay for that, so why should we give them... Well, now you're saying it so many times you might be, you might be sued. <laughs> I believe the context of Tums is Mo, eat, Mo sucking on baby teeth because he isn't Tums, Tums rich. Don't say it anymore. So that's... You can keep saying baby teeth, though. Yeah. If you want. Um, this actually, I, I think that, that question, though, about whether my so-called life, you know, had it emerge now uh, on a different network. Well, it uh, has, I guess. I mean, isn't, uh, isn't um, uh, Lena Dunham doing Girls? And 
Yeah, I guess um, so. It's probably for, I haven't seen it's it yet. It's not going to have that Winnie Holzman thing, though. Um, can I see? But I think that's actually a, a natural segue <laughs> to ask about Huge, which was on a smaller network. It was on a tiny network. Yeah. But actually very successful. Um, mm-hmm. It was on ABC Family. And, and it was, a, I mean, I have to say, it was a great show. It was amazing in that, in that they hired us to create 10 episodes. That is unheard of. I, I don't know anyone who. I don't, I don't know who does that, except maybe Martin Scorsese gets that. I, I don't know. It's like, in other words, they didn't say, could you do a pilot? They were like, could you do 10 episodes? So granted, yes, they did cancel us after the 10, but we felt pretty fortunate to have shot and aired um, 10 episodes. We were pretty stoked about that. And, and you know, it's different to... It was hard, but it was different to plan. I'd been, I'd been gotten so... I mean, no, this sounds awful, but... I don't like writing pilots that don't get made, obviously. And that, I had done oh, a, a fair baby. amount of that. <laughs> what? <laughs> poor baby. What? They what really made... They, these guys would kill to have... I know, that's a, why... You give them $20. I had dollars. the decency to say how awful this is going to sound. I did say that. You heard me say that. It's on I the tape. <laughs> I said this is going to sound awful, and I, I knew I, how annoying. I did. I found really... That sounded bad. But <laughs> it is disappointing. You know, so Absolutely. in other words, it was a breath of fresh air to be told you're going to create this pilot and then we're going to do like nine more episodes. I mean, it just felt really nice yeah. to know that we could tell a story. To, did, I was going to ask, did you guys tell the story that you wanted to tell in those we 10 did. episodes? That's we great. Did. We wanted awesome. to tell more. Yeah. Um, we had more planned, but yeah, we did. We did. And not without a fair, a little bit of fighting, but <laughs> to, to be, to be honest, they were very fair to us. They were very good to us and they just looked at it finally and it wasn't what they it wasn't what they do. See, what I thought was, this is getting so into the business of it, but I thought that they were hiring us thinking we're going to expand what we do into this other type of thing so that we're going to have more than one thing that we do. I didn't realize that they were, this is what I meant about networks hearing what they want to hear. You know, because like I could say to them every day, which I did, I would say, this is going to be dark. It's going to look dark mm-hmm. and it's going to sometimes be dark it's going to be ambiguous it's going to i would i would use all those terms i would say you know how so-called life was it was going to be like that you know and they would they would they would think that they'd heard or maybe they just didn't believe that 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 they couldn't convince me eventually mm-hmm. to just do something else and it's not that i'm you know it's not that i'm a closed-minded person but I just have to feel if it's going to be on the air with my name on it, I have to sure. think it's good. Yeah, I mean, you. I have to think it's what I would do, not yeah. not so much. You know what I mean? Absolutely, you have to tell the story that you want to tell. Yeah, or that so wants when you to looked, told. Yeah, Absolutely. so when you looked at our the commercials for Huge, it was like one of these things is not like the other. I mean, you would look at you know the rest of their network, and then you'd look <laughs> at Huge, and it was like, what what is that? You know, what is what, how did it wander onto this? Network, mm-hmm. and I thought that that was planned. I thought that you know, and that wasn't. Yeah. It was this like a clerical error. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that's that you know, telling the story that you want to tell or that wants to be told, I think, is an interesting thing. Considering what you were just talking about, Paul, uh, you know, when someone doesn't have ownership of a show, if a showrunner uh, has taken over a show or is just running a show that he didn't create. So, Paul, are you going into like staffing season now? Yeah, because it's, 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 we hear things about Terra Nova going to Netflix or. 
Magic, yeah, I magic, don't know. Magic things like that. I, I don't know. I mean, that I think that story is still breaking mm-hmm. news. But mm-hmm. I mean, anything could happen. It could happen. They could start fresh. Mm-hmm. I mean, I. Uh, but you, yeah. But yeah. you as a writer don't hold out for it. Certainly, I, no, I, I'm not. I'm just reading, reading pilots. Yeah. What do you have any like first? What would your, what would your dream job be now? Have you read Last Resort? Oh, uh, that's what I, was gonna say. I haven't read. <laughs> I, I don't actually. This is my dick. One of my many douchey things. I hate readings. Pilots, and I will never read them. Okay, that's okay because I don't. I don't watch The Simpsons. Um, <laughs> nobody, nobody does anymore. Not but, since year five, right? No. Um, but uh, last resort. I've never, I've never heard of Terra Nova until just now. We are, uh, we are huge in Italy. <laughs> Terra Nova was huge. Uh, let's get some questions from you guys. Hi, um, how does each of you approach a pilot? Where do you start, and how do you go on to shape it? Anyone who wants to jump quickly. in. I write it, and then I would never show it to anybody. <laughs> Are you, you know, you're, you've been on staff on The Simpsons for a long time. Yes. Are you writing pilots? I'll do it, like, just to see, like, oh, maybe I can write some awesome show that'll <laughs> light the world on fire. And then I'm, I'm like, nah, I'd rather just be this unknown quantity. <laughs> That's a good Hollywood piece of advice, too. Have people, have people imagine how good you are in their heads is way more powerful than the, whatever, just the same as everyone else's stuff you create. <laughs> um, are, have you been asked to pitch pilots as well? Yeah, I've kind of like blown it off. I'm supposed to do one this year. I'll do one this year for real. I promise. I swear. Here, you guys, you're better. Yeah. Um, well, I I wrote I wrote a new pilot last year to try and get to just get back in the game a little bit because my my writing samples up to that point had been SVU or a feature script or something. So I wanted to write something that that I've been planning for a while. So I had this idea that. Um, that I wanted to break, and I spent a lot of time with it, honestly, in all the off hours from the other jobs I was pitching or whatever else I was doing. Um, I spent about two months outlining and then one month writing. Um, Can you tell us what it was? Yeah, I mean, I, nothing's really happened with it. It's kind of like a brand-new writing sample. It's a cable-ish crime Southern California FBI-type show. But um, in order to do it, a ton of research on the background world that it was set in, a ton of research on the FBI when I was at SVU, I was lucky enough to make friends with one of our consultants who's a retired FBI undercover. Um, and I would encourage, you know, if, if, you're, if you're writing about a, a super specific world, I would encourage you to reach out to people in that world. People want to talk. Like, people want to talk and open up about it. Mm-hmm. They don't want to reveal state secrets, you know what I mean? But they, but they do want to talk about what they do for a living because everybody, the more specific you can get, I think the better the script is going to be. So mm-hmm. details, research, and give yourself time to outline. I would say me personally more time to outline than write. How much rewriting did you do on your... your a lot. It's like I was saying before, like just getting, just getting the first script down to then look at it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's, that was easily the second part of the month mm-hmm. is just carving it up sure. with, with a pencil. Um, Winnie, pilots? Um, when I was doing Huge, which was I guess maybe two years ago, or was it? Yeah, I think so. Um, I, I hadn't done TV in a while, and I started to suddenly realize that this pilot that I wrote that didn't go um, around 1999, I started to think of another way to approach the same group of characters in the same world. I think that was great advice, by the way. I've, I've definitely done that, uh, where I've talked to people, really done research. That's been super helpful for me. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm trying to figure out if, if indeed I can completely revamp this pilot because I, I'm still a little confused as if it, if it makes a TV show or not. 
And I, I'm, I'm fine. Who asked the question? Oh, I find pilots, you know, it's very challenging. I mean, maybe that's a stupid thing to say, but because you want to feel like it really could keep going and you want to feel like you could really just generate story, like you want to feel the story just oozing out of it. And it's a little hard because not every script that you would write, you know, does that. Let's face it. So (laughs) there's like a feeling of like, where's the story going to come from? That's what I ask myself. That's what I always ask myself. What's this, what are, where are the stories going to come from? You know, who or what mm-hmm. situation or yeah. it's, it's tricky, but it's, it's, I, I mean, it's very important to try. I mean, you don't want to, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to psych yourself out. You know what I mean? In other words, if you're thinking, oh God, this is so hard. I mean, I find it really hard. I don't know anyone. I have a lot of friends who are writers. They find writing pilots really hard and they, you know, brings them to their knees, basically. So it's not like you should take that as a sign that you shouldn't be doing it. Do you see what I mean? I what is? I mean, it's the importance that's come up a lot here tonight, and the importance of just doing that vomit draft of getting that one out. Right. Usually, you're just anyone is just anxious. What if I can't even write anything? And then once you get that that anxiety out of the way, then you can kind of work on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Another it's, question over anxiety here. Anxiety is very powerful. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, my question was really about uh, writing the spec or breaking in like you were discussing before. I was wondering if it was analogous, like I'm an actor and they want you to do a monologue, but it's not showing you interacting or working with a team or taking direction. So this is a similar thing like you were discussing, like just getting the draft out there and you just want to get you know, the framework out so you can work in the room. Is writing a spec a similar thing where you've got to prove that, yeah, I can do it, I can write a whole thing and support it myself, but really what you want to do is just work together with a team, collaborate. I don't know if it's so much as a question or maybe just something you might be able to well, I would say, like, we're saying, I believe what we're saying is in the internal, our own internal processes, we like to do a lot of drafts. But, but, and it's not, it's, but for, what, for you guys, you should really have something that is super exceptional <laughs> and that you should not, I mean, even, even though if it will just get you in the door and you will not be asked to do that again for a long time, mm-hmm. it, uh, the material really needs to sparkle. Yeah, I think um, this had, this does come up quite a bit, and that, that's exactly right. I mean, I, it came up when Jane Espenson was here who said, you know, as non-working writers, you have nothing but time. So you have all the time you want to make that spec as good as it can be. Um, is it indicative of whether or not you can write an episode of Law & Order? Who knows? But that's, you know, the trend is towards original material these days anyway. Right. Is that what everyone, that's what they say. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you have to be able. I mean, I was reading this book recently um, called Uncertainty. Have you, have you heard this book? Uh, um, it's a. It's about any any creative process. It doesn't have to be writing. It could be painting or entre- being an entrepreneur, even. But it's it's about the importance of embracing uncertainty because when you're let's take what we do when you're writing. Basically, you have to be able to live with the feeling. Um, that you have no idea what you're doing for a while. You know what I mean? Any writers? Yeah. (laughs) I'm getting really blank looks, but I'm going to just persevere. Um, You have to be, you know, see, I can live with uncertainty now. It's an object lesson. No, yeah, I can live with it. I mean, I don't know if you hear me or if you care, if you like me or whatever, but it's okay because I'm just going to say what I need to say Um, because I live that way. I live with... I can live with a certain amount of uncertainty now because I've been practicing that, and that's actually what the job description is, in my opinion. It's like 
the willingness to care, to write the thing that you have no idea like what's the story I don't even know so like you to use what you were saying you write the first draft just to teach yourself what the fuck is the story what the fuck is the story then or, or you, what isn't the story or what isn't yeah. the story exactly and then you've got something and it's got all kinds of problems you have to be willing to 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 live with the with the not knowing like everything about it you know yeah uh, out of curiosity Matt and, and Paul you can probably answer this too but once the train has left the station uh, is there time for that uncertainty I I don't know <laughs> don't you guys have a long lead time because of anim- our show is, like a, I mean, is useless to any of them it's so unique <laughs> I would just say more speaking towards your own writing to ignore, ben, ignore Ben's question the one thing That's that fair. is absolutely essential in any material that you try to get a job or an agent with and at least if, is just if you can make the reader feel anything, and if you can make them feel anything that is like they haven't felt a lot many times before, I think that is like even a goofy comedy show like The Simpsons is like super huge, high number one goal, like of anything. You know, that's it. That's all. It's, I mean, and that feelings are funny. Feelings are sad. You know, some some old timer once said that the way you should be able to get into the Writers Guild. It's not like through your credits or whatever. It's you should be able to go in front of a bunch of people and either make them laugh or make them cry. If you can do that, you can be in the Writers Guild. And if you're writing spec material, it's really hard to make someone laugh. But it's even, I would say, a higher goal, a more ambitious goal, and a more important goal. Anyone can write jokes. Jokes are easy. It's to make people feel and connect with what's going on. I will shut up. Mm -hmm. I, I, I think that's a good point. I think, ben, I think Ben's question is a good one, and it speaks to no. what, you, what you just said. <laughs> well, it speaks to what you just said about the fact that the trend is towards more towards original material now mm-hmm. than specs. Like, I, I imagine that if a showrunner is is casting their room, they they're going to learn more from an original piece of material of yours than they are going to learn from your episode of, of CSI Miami, which isn't to say it's easy to write a CSI mm-hmm. Miami because it's not, but. They're trying to put their room together, and if you can reach out with something original that they haven't seen 40 times, that might, that might speak to them mm-hmm. in a different way. But this is, a, I mean, this is the argument, and again, it's come up here a number of times about, you know, you are showing something original that might be brilliant, but that doesn't, doesn't necessarily mean you can do the job. You know, if you're getting hired as a staff writer or a lower-level writer, it doesn't mean you can capture the voice of the showrunner or of the show. Yeah, but I mean, a lot of the time, you're casting something that no one's seen yet, like mm-hmm. a, a pilot that got picked up. Sure. So you're, there's no way to know. It's a crapshoot. Yeah. There's no way to know. Yeah. You just want to put together that baseball team. And also, you, you know, you can make someone feel something. In a, I mean, certainly in like you know, a spec, you know, SVU or whatever. I mean, those shows are full of feelings and important things. Like, yeah. I mean, what, even, even in like a CSI Miami, you, if you, that was their chosen spec, you could do that. Is it? You could do that. I mean, also, obviously, if it's personal and original, maybe that's easier. But you know, just keep keep that in mind. Uh, what are you guys watching on television? What are your rooms? If you're in rooms, talking about? Uh, Wendy, we'll start with you. Um, tonight, I'm going to watch a bunch of enlightened episodes. Um, and I I'm embarrassed to tell you some of the stuff I watch on TV. Let's get it out. I'm really obsessed with um, with Project Runway. I've I've been there from all the stars, beginning. Watching All Stars. Um, I really love the cooking shows and the... I mm-hmm. mean, I, I... You know, it's interesting. We've been talking about it all night, but 
I like those shows where you have to create something in a short amount of time, you know, cooking, fashion. Hmm. I relate. And I guess you could say I kind of relate more than maybe some other type of shows. Yeah. I, was, I was saying before in the green room, I, I do love to watch The Simpsons. And um, I'm, bl- I'm blanking. I'm, I'm sure. Oh, Homeland. I'm obsessed with Homeland. Sure. That's that's really that's really the show I couldn't miss this year. Which one? Homeland. Oh, Homeland. Yeah. That's the sequel to my so-called life. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Matt, what are you watching? Well, you know, the, the, the DVR is always full of stuff, but the, you always know which shows you're really excited to watch. And I think, like, <laughs> for me, it's like Eastbound and Down is like fantastic and insane, and as dirty and weird it is, you feel for that guy to go back to what my pedantic ramblings but you know like you feel for Kenny as much of a fucking shithead as he is you, you, there's real vulnerability in him and I think it's a it, you know in his acting and just the way he's made horrible choices and can't deal with it and uh, so you know I'll just say Eastbound and Down is like the show that I would be mm-hmm. most excited to watch the new episode of now that no, now that Downs and Abbey is over, and my wife and I no longer have anything to talk about. <laughs> that, that was pretty much it, that show. <laughs> Paul, um, right, right now, what's on right now? I mean, I've been watching and loving Luck uh, on HBO. Yeah. Just like, it's really confusing and <laughs> ridiculously dense, but I just love it, and I so look forward to it. So in terms of dramas that are on right now, I've been, I've been really, really enjoying Luck. But mm-hmm. I, I watch a lot of comedies, and I think because I don't write it, you know, and I don't want to write it, and I, I you know, it's, it's an escape for me. So I watch Homeland 2 and Downton, I love that stuff, but I watch a ton of comedies. Like, 30 Rock makes me really happy. My I favorite, love 30 Rock. Amazing my, show. My favorite new show is this uh, sketch show on Comedy Central, Key and Peele. Yeah. Like, yeah. it's it's so funny. You should have those, I mean, you should have, That's like, really a Key funny. and Peele thing. That would be amazing. All right, I will. Yeah. I'm glad I like that um, Louis C.K. show. That sure. is pretty funny. Oh, yeah, yeah. it's a great show. Uh, funny and weird and, like... All the things you want to show. There's a real, I mean, like, there's a huge number of great shows that are like auteur type shows on TV. I mean, maybe those writers aren't making $50 million, but they're getting to do what they want Mm -hmm. for a lot of them, or at least feels like it. Well, he clearly is. Well, he clearly is. But, you know, like, you know, Homeland is amazing. Breaking Bad. Breaking Mm -hmm. Bad. I mean, you know, it's kind of interesting that for show creators, again, not a concern of any of yours, that, uh, you know, they can, they're given this kind of interesting autonomy where they can write all the shows, shoot all the shows, then edit all the shows. They're not on the train. They're on a different train. Yeah. And they can really create a, an experience, a season-long experience, almost like a, like a mega movie or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, in, in a different way where they can, like, like, as opposed to, like, having to, like, always be breaking, writing, editing, shooting, breaking, you know, mm-hmm. all that stuff that's in yeah. a 22-episode situation. Mm-hmm. Hey, Ben. Yes? Can I say one more thing about trains? I wish you would. <laughs> I, uh, I loved Hell on Wheels. Oh, really? Season one. Yeah. I stuck with it all the way through. I, thought it, was, I thought it was awesome. Right. Um, I'm really excited to see what they do in season two, but that's, nice. a, good, that's a really good, really weird show. Like, Is it, and it's, it's told uh, like all, all these ones that we love in this kind of novelistic way, yeah, right? Like deep, deeply novelistic and like in very, like historical, you know, Transcontinental Railroad, post-Civil War. Just a beautiful show, great acting. All right, we'll get those guys on too. Really Thanks good. for booking it. Uh, <laughs> please thank my guests, Paul Gerlong, Matt Selman, and Winnie Holzman. <laughs> Thanks to 826LA and everyone here at Meltdown Comics. Um, oh, thanks to Dan Byrne, who wrote and performed the theme song, and I forget to thank him every week. Uh, so please give Dan Byrne a round of applause.
Now leaving Nerdist.com.